This is the Epic New Podcast. Two idiots and a list. Where you're going to get two idiots and a list. And now, coming to you live from Circle Avenue Studios, your hosts, Nick Fasolo and Kirik McMillan. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Two Idiots and a List. Coming to you live from the Circle Avenue studios again, I am here today, as always, with my partner, Nicholas Fasolo. Hey guys, welcome back uh, to another episode. Um, today, we are going to be looking at a sneaky band from the 80s, In Excess. All veils and misty, streets are blue. Almond looks that chill divine. moment. I say sneaky because, like, when you think of 80s music, like, they are very prevalent throughout the entire 80s. Very popular. Um, well, like, established on MTV, but, like, you never really think of them as, like, an 80s band. Or you never really think of them, period. No, I'm with you. This was a this was a strange one for me. I I came to the conclusion that I neither loved nor hated in excess. They were kind of like wallpaper. Oh, well, I mean, I have a different opinion about it, but yeah, they're just it's a, it's a weird old band because they don't they weren't I guess they weren't larger than life. You know, in the '80s, was just filled with like just gigantic you know bands and personalities and you know Guns N' Roses and even Def Leppard was a huge presence you know personality wise. You have Madonna, Prince, and Michael Jackson. We all, uh, you know, even Bruce Springsteen is a big personality, and it's just, they just got washed out. I think it's like they're not like they're not front and center when people think like name your top ten '80s bands. I don't think NXS makes a big list there. No, no, and I had. I had a couple of albums of theirs. Uh, I think I, I'm sure I had Kick. I had Live Baby Live. I can't think of reaching for them often. You know, they were sort of like Wonder Bread for me. They, <laughs> you're not going to get offended by In Excess. They're not going to make you mad. Um, I, I enjoyed some of their songs. You know, listening to these things, I went, oh yeah, I, I kind of forgot about that song. I, I kind of dug that song. And others, it was sort of like, you know, that was sort of the song that was playing, not necessarily in an elevator or a dentist office, but it would be playing like at <laughs> The Gap or, you know, Banana Republic or something like that. Well, I mean, the one thing that they did have was they had just a super charismatic frontman. Like, yeah. Michael Hutchins was, you know, dare I say, a beautiful man. Like, yeah. And he yeah. was super, like... You know, sexy for the time, and he played to the audience, played to the camera, he played to all of his, you know, his, you know, his his entertainment outlets. Like he was, like he knew what he was. Like right. he was the, you know, a sex symbol, and he played it pretty well. He's, you know, he's find myself oddly attracted to him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you know, we can. I don't know, do you want to unpack him right off the bat? Because yeah, I think that we'll just get that out of the way because it's a really bummer kind of a story. Like, it's a bummer the way that it all turned out. Um, there, there's a lot to, to kind of look at with him. Um, and I, I think the... Let's hit the elephant in the corner right away. Yeah. This Working on this, I found out that I have been living in a lie for the last 20 or 30 years. As is most. As I'm sure most people mm-hmm. did, that he died as a result of autoerotic asphyxiation, right. which, in fact, appears to not be the case. Uh, it was instead a rumor that was started by his partner, Paula Yates, who was, prior to Hutchins, married to Bob Geldof right. of the Boomtown Rats. And, and really an unstable person to begin with. Yeah, but. she uh, she died about three years after he did from a heroin overdose. Uh, but she had started this rumor that he died choking himself while masturbating, which that's quite a it's really an awful thing. To that's do. Quite, that's <laughs> a really an awful thing to do. That's quite a legacy to leave on somebody, and you know that people, was kind of like how it was, it came out. That's how I heard of his death. Like we, because it was almost like in the same like area or time with David Carradine. Yeah, died at the same time of the same kind of thing. That's what we were told. But I remember hearing about it. I'm like, oh man. So interestingly enough, I saw him. I saw NXS play. August 22nd, 1997. Okay. At UIC with Matchbox 20 and the Violent Femmes. 
That's an interesting lineup. Yeah, this is strange. I don't know how it was in college. It was well, I was out of college by that time, but it was at my old university. Um, so that was on August twenty second, um, November twenty second that year. Three months later, he died. Yeah. So uh, we saw one of his final performances, um, and uh, yeah, it was like that's what I heard about it. I'm like, oh man, that's really sad. And then I heard about it, you know, how he, he had purportedly died, or what what Paul Yates had said, and I was like, well. That's kind of a bummer. <laughs> yeah. Know, guys and just it, trying to have a good time and it, things got out of hand. It stuck. I mean, it's like the gerbil with yeah, uh, right. Richard, uh, Gere. Richard Gere, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a, I think that rumor was started by Sylvester Stallone because they were competing for a part, if I remember my <laughs> Hollywood mythology correctly. But, you know, this story that she started about, uh, about Michael Hutchins stuck like glue. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the coroner who was responsible for his autopsy, uh, a newspaper published a statement by him, an Australian newspaper published a statement by him, and the guy came right out and said, there is absolutely no evidence of anything here beyond the fact that Michael Hutchins hung himself. Right. And yeah. what's, what's more probably closer to the truth is really, really sad because in 1993, he has this fight in Copenhagen with a taxi cab driver. Right. And the guy flat knocks his ass out, and he bangs his head on the curb really mm-hmm. badly. And um, so this is this. The way I was introduced to this was in the, the there was a new documentary called Mystify about in excess, but they go into this into detail. Um, you know, the odds are that he suffered a traumatic brain injury, never got treatment for it, and you know the evidence was that he would have these violent mood swings right. for the next you know, whatever it is, four or five years of his life where he was not the person that people who knew him all his life, he's just not that person. Right. And, right. you know, he would have these moments of clarity where he would come back and then, you know, you know, he would get ultimately depressed about it. And unfortunately, I think that's kind of what happened. Yeah. And, and what I had read indicated that he actually had a skull fracture yeah. <clears throat> and he didn't get it looked at for a week. Now, this happened once before in the rock world. The bass player from the Allman Brothers got into a motorcycle accident and walked around for a week afterwards and then eventually keeled as a result of that of that injury. Hutchins permanently lost his sense of smell yeah. and taste from this thing. That's right. And That's he, enough to drive you mad. Yeah, right? <laughs> Jesus. Right? He had a, an angry, sometimes violent side, and what... What I saw indicated that, you know, that might have led, uh, the injury might have led to some of those behaviors uh, becoming worse. Well, that and also, so he's got all that going on. And plus the real life drama of Paula Yates, his, uh, you know, new child and Bob Geldof continuing to like, um, you know, threatening to take the the children away from Paula. They were his children, but Michael Hutchins, you know, in their long relationships or whatever became to, you know, really take a shine to them or whatever and Geldof was constantly saying this woman is a heroin addict and she is not a fit mother I need those kids back because they were living in Australia or Hong Kong and right. Geldof was back in London um, and you know the, here's like the mensch that, that Geldof was when Hutchins died Polly Yates died and then Tiger Lily was their kid and Geldof adopted her and made her a part of his family right Yeah, and then one of Geldof's daughters died of an overdose Paul as well. Paul Yates is their middle I think so. child? I think yeah. so. Uh, just, yeah, she's a, a London socialite writer. Yeah. Man, really I, sad. Rough history. You know, his his estimated <laughs> value at his death was, and I don't know where their source was. I think this was Wikipedia. They said it was somewhere between 10 and 20 million. Yeah. That seemed kind of low to me. It seems low. But for, there's six guys in the band. There are, but yeah. everybody had that album, or at least one of their albums. Like I yeah. can, oh, Kick was huge. Kick was huge. It was everywhere. Was huge. It yeah. was a really popular pop album, and Live Baby Live was a popular live album, and I Look, think X and some of their other ones. Kick was huge, and the record company Atlantic, the, the managing uh, editor or managing guy at Atlantic who, who held um, you know the NXS's cards, hated it. <laughs> he listened to the whole thing. From stem to stern, and at the end of it, he said, "I'll give you a million dollars to go write a new album." <laughs> I fucking hated it. And then, so their their manager then said, "Like, well, we need." He believed in the album, and he's like, "We need to get this played." So he hit college radio, 
Right. And that's where kind of like, that's where I kind of, well, I knew of NXS because MTV, obviously, they were all over there. Uh, but I didn't really listen to their catalogs until, you know, around college when Kick Hit um, and then um, X came out was their 90 I think it was their follow-up to yeah, Kick, it was, wasn't yeah, it? Exactly, yeah. But then they did a big college tour, and uh, and, and all of a sudden, out of the college radio, it just started to, to right. gain momentum. And it's the second largest, second, second best-selling album in Australia behind Back in Black. Wow. Yeah. And, and if you look at that list of Australian artists, um, it's pretty long. You know, there's, in modern day, you've got Tame Impala, Back in that day, you had ACDC, although half those guys were Scots, and you had the yeah. Bee Gees, and half those, you know, those were actually three British brothers, but... They came out of Australia. They, they came out of Australia, and uh, they've, you know, there was a lot, of, a lot of music that came from Australia, and the fact that these guys clipped that, you know, that kind of second notch, that's impressive, because yeah. ACDC Back in Black has got to be a really it's hard album to compete with. Yeah. Well, you know, Kick ended up selling about 20 million worldwide, which is a huge album. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot. It's really big. I mean, here's here's 1987 in a nutshell. Can I write, read you off the, I the wish albums you would. for 1987? Going in chronological order. Listen to this. This is fucking crazy. In February, Joshua Tree. Then you have Princess Sign of the Times, White Snake, Tango in the Night, which is Fleetwood Mac's second biggest album, Let Me Up, I've Had Enough. From Tom Petty. Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me. The Cure. Girls, Girls, Girls. The Crew. The Crew. <laughs> Jane's Addiction's uh, first album. Which was huge. Whitney, which is gigantic. Right. Um, Radio Chaos, one of my favorites from Waters. Uh, Appetite for Destruction. Wow. Hysteria. Those came almost two back-to-back in August. R.E.M.'s Document, A Momentary Lapse of Reason. Hold Your Fire, for those Rush fans out there. Yes. Music for the Masses. Uh, Chili Peppers Uplift Mafo Party Jam. Vital Idol. <laughs> Bruce Springsteen's Tunnel of Love. Satriani's Surfing with the Alien. I love that album. Yeah, right? And then Kick came out in November, then followed by Michael... Uh, oh, who's the guy? Faith. Oh, uh, um, yeah, from Wham. <laughs> What's his name? George Michael. George Michael. Yeah, I knew it was Michael in there somewhere. <laughs> That was another gigantic album. And of course, on Christmas Eve, Floodland from the Sisters of Mercy was released. (laughs) You might recognize Sisters of Mercy from the I Want More drop we've been using. Great album. (laughs) So, but I mean, like 1987, and you had other albums from Santana, Neil Young, Paul McCartney, Steve Warner, Barbra Streisand, uh, Cher, and Aretha Franklin all put out original material in new album form in 1987. That is a killer fucking year yeah. of music. I mean, just, a, those are all of them are like Hall of Fame recording artists and some of their best albums. That's a lot of music. That's a lot of music. Ton. And they, so that is the universe that Kick dropped into. And for the next year, um, it went on to sell, you know, just gobs and gobs and gobs of albums. Yeah. So like it was an impressive run for those boys. Yeah. And they carried it for a while. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think I probably bought that at the towards the end of high school, which would have been 90, or in college sometime. Well, this was the first concert you ever saw, right? This is the second concert I saw. Oh, I thought it was always the first. I thought it was the first, too. I actually looked it up, and I found the ticket stubs. This is the second concert I saw, the first being Rush, Hold Your Fire. Oh, my God. <laughs> How did that so that was So you saw them June 18th, 1988. Uh, it was, I have to look through my notes right. here, but Old it Poplar was, Creek. I think it was, yeah, um, it was Poplar Creek. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I won the tickets on, uh, on the loop. <laughs> I was the 13th caller. Um, I was working for the, uh, Elmhurst school district cleaning classrooms during the summers and we had the radio on <laughs> and they said, they said, yeah, it was gross. Scraping gum off the bottom of decks, oh desks God. and breathing weird chemicals. Did, you, did they give you hepatitis C or did you come with it? <laughs> it, was a, it was a bonus. <laughs> um, and, you know, middle of the day rolls around. They say, hey, 13th caller gets tickets to NXS. And there was a phone in an office right next to where we were working. So I ran in there. I started dialing and sure as hell. I uh, I saw the I saw an excess later that summer. It so wasn't you, a bad show. You got a pair of ducats for the kick tour, and um, can you can you remember who you took? <laughs> who I you took it off. I took a neighbor of mine. A neighbor okay, of mine. So let's just for, so hold it right there. 
Uh, in June of 88, you are 16 years old. Somewhere about a there. A freshly... Yeah. Freshly close. minted 16-year-old, yes. <laughs> freshly squeezed a 16 years old. <laughs> okay. All right, go ahead. And do you remember who... Yes. So mm-hmm. I, I took my neighbor, who mm-hmm. uh, was a decade older than I was. 26. 26. Years old. Well, he could drive. I couldn't. You did have friends, though. I did have friends. Okay. And you did have your license. Uh, I don't know if I had my license by right, then or okay. not. But Small detail. Uh, it was, uh, I don't know why it ended up being that way, but I had seen Rush earlier that year with him. So With him uh, again? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So he's is your concert this, buddy. He's my concert buddy. A 26-year-old man. <laughs> Going with a 16-year-old. <laughs> I was never in any danger. Do we, do we have to stop here and make a phone call? <laughs> so to, to be fair, though, this, this man um, was not to be fair. I mean, just to, the reality is like he was our connection. He was. That was the only reason why he was around. And why a 26-year-old man was hanging out with 16-year-old boys Buying them alcohol. It wasn't the smartest move on my part or my parents' part. Anybody's part. I had been hanging around with him since I was a, a very young kid. So. Right. He's a family. He's like, a friend he's of a, a next family. Door neighbor, yeah, the next-door neighbor, family friend. Yeah. yeah. So it's it could have gone in a very story. different direction, Eesh. but it didn't. So, yeah. <laughs> I don't think my old man is sitting there. He's like, who's the guy in the car <laughs> who's taking you to, you know, wherever you're going on a Friday night. And I said, oh, that's, uh, you know, that's Kirk's uh, friend, uh, you know, this next door neighbor. He never pieced it together. This 26-year-old <laughs> man driving in a shitty Camaro Ber- Ber- Berlinetta <laughs> that inevitably would just be carting around a bunch of drunk teenagers. It worked out great for it, us. It really worked out perfect. Right? Because my brother had forsaken us already. Oh, yeah. We, just, we weren't getting any beer off of them. Him and his older friends who were already in, in you know seniors in high school, they had forsaken us. They were like, I'm not getting... Because we already we got caught once right? freshman year. And that was like, that's it. We're done. Yep. You're not... Dr- and, <laughs> so, and we have a limited supply ourselves. That's so right. We're not that's sharing like, any with and, you. And then the, the coup de grace was like, they had to come to us because we had an unlimited supply of... That's right. Right? Hey, so can, they, you, can you send your 26-year-old friend out to buy us alcohol? <laughs> hey, Double Dare, where's my beer? <laughs> oh, Christ. All right. That well, was let's, fucked up. God let's, damn. Let's get into this. <laughs> if I ever come to my fucking kid with a guy who's 10 years older, I'm calling the cops. Oh, yeah. So there's going to be a dead person on my lawn in about half an hour. <laughs> Being the meat wagon. All right. Let's get into the list. Why don't you kick it off? Yes. All right. So my uh, um, my 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 uh, honorable mention for this band uh, is is uh, from their their 1992 album "Welcome to Wherever You Are," um, and it's the track "Baby Don't Cry." They had about 60, they had a 60-piece orchestra play on this track and another track in that. And and um, I, I just like the song because it's got, it's almost just like Phil Spector, Wall of Sound type thing. Right. And it's it's really not much for lyrics. I mean, I think they just repeat Baby Don't Cry about 900 times during the song. <laughs> but for some reason, I just, um, well, there's other lyrics to it, but then that's what I remember out of it. But it's really, a, I, I really like, it's a, it's a groove that I... I like. I don't know. Did you ever hear the song? I. It's not ring new bell. Welcome to wherever you are was uh, one of those things. Was like it was 1992, so it was like the height of the grunge era. And whenever an 80s band put out an album, it's like you would have to go searching for it, and you really would have to like like it to go buy it. Right. Right. Like Adrenalize came out in like 91, and like it, it, it did. It did chart very well, but it was like one of those things. It just got lost in the wash. Right. Like it was just not in the pop culture mainstream. Um, and you know that's what kind of this this album is a really good album though I do like it. I've I did cruise through a lot of their stuff, uh, you know, in prep for this, but I'm I'm not as familiar with with some of these farther out stuff or farther out songs uh, or albums actually. I think I I don't think I had X, but I was a lot of it was familiar to me when I listened to it. Yeah. So, 
All right, my uh, my honorable mention is Beautiful Girl. Stay with me. Beautiful girl. One of the aspects of this song is going to be repeated through much of my top five, uh, and it's something that I've noticed with them that I haven't noticed as much with other bands. And they bounce back and forth between major and minor keys throughout the same song. And they do it really smoothly. It's not like uh, you're watching, you know, Phantom of the Opera where she's, you know, singing this sweet song and then the organ kicks in of, you know, the Phantom's coming. Like, you can, you can kind of manhand that sort of approach to music. And they do it really smoothly. Yeah. Andrew Ferris is a really good songwriter. He's a really good musician. Yeah, and um, he wrote he wrote this song. He was inspired to write the song when his daughter was born. Hmm. So it's kind of a sweet song. You know, the beautiful girl is not Van Halen's beautiful girls. It's <laughs> it's uh, you know this guy's singing about his his daughter. And here's Doesn't a, it start out though? Nikki's on the corner. <laughs> I think I think it does with a black coat on. It, it might. <laughs> anyhow, to, now anyhow. I got to listen to it more closely. <laughs> And here's another comment that does also ring true to a lot of their songs. They used a lot of saxophone. Oh, now, yeah. I, I panned, uh, you know, put up a, a sax solo in our Phil Collins episode that we really kind of turned around and started trashing the, the presence of saxophone. <laughs> well, we've been on this quest pop to find music. who the fuck yes, is responsible is the... for the sax solos. But uh, go ahead, finish your point about the sax. I think what they do with the saxophone in, in these songs is pretty good. It's it's uh, it doesn't have that '80s gross sort of wham feel. The you know Kenny G feel. The Kenny G feel. Yeah. The Michael Douglas movie the feel. Eric Clapton, Michelob beer commercial, <laughs> right. Lethal Weapon, sax. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. No. Yeah, Besides Clarence Clemens, he's the best. I, I think it's Tim something. It's not one of the brothers, but it's the other no. guy, the weird looking guy. Um, um, he's the best. He's his sax work on all of their songs so that I can think of. Um, they're really, really well done, and yeah. they don't. They're not out of place. They're not like what the fuck is a sax doing right, here? Right. <laughs> and actually, speaking of the sax and that guy, when I when I saw them uh, in '88 at Poplar Creek, he, he in the middle of a solo, he had moved towards the front of the stage, and he was he was blowing it hard as he leaned over the crowd, and someone in the front row reached up grabbed the bell of the saxophone and yanked on it. Oh, nice. Well, the sax is on a lanyard around his neck. Yeah. It flipped him into the audience, <laughs> and every spotlight in the place came on, and they were searching madly for this guy. And pretty soon you see the crowd rolling him around, and he doesn't look happy. He's not, like, <laughs> crowd surfing. He's plan. like, put me the fuck back on this stage I'm now. a sax player, fuckers. <laughs> right? You're ruining my solo. So they, they end up dumping him back. Grabs <laughs> a sax <laughs> Yanked into the fucking crowd. They end up dumping him back on stage, but his sax is gone. So the searchlights are going everywhere because apparently this this asshole tours with one saxophone. Like, you're going to leave a giant hole in our music if there's no saxophone. There's no for the sax rest wrangling. Of this. Yeah, no shit. Why right? wouldn't you pick a second sax? Right. Get so, out your alto. Pre- <laughs> Pretty soon, you see the spotlights glinting off stuff, and they all focus in on one spot. And there's like one guy in the middle of the crowd, <laughs> off you know, 200 feet from where the guy fell in the thing, and just cruised through the crowd. He's holding it up like, ah! <laughs> everybody jumps on him, just beats <laughs> yeah. the shit out Security of him. Security just burrowed, through, you know, through the crowd to him. They pulled the sacks back. And you there, <laughs> unhand that sax. <laughs> the guy's holding it up like the jukebox, and uh, <laughs> only in Chicago would they fucking pull you by your sacks into the crowd <laughs> right. and then steal it from you, right? <laughs> It's like it reminds me of the uh, Allison Chains concert that we saw at the uh, the brawl room, and um, Lane Staley jumped in the crowd on purpose. Right, right. And you know he was surfing around, and then he was like he wasn't returning for a while, and then some he he somehow pops up on back up on stage, <laughs> and he's got his sunglasses that are half broken off his face, <laughs> and he's he's flipping around like in one bare foot and one sock that's almost all the way pulled off, and he he, he grabs the mic and he's like, only in Chicago would they steal your fucking shoes and your socks, and then he walked <laughs> off. They had to go and cool him down. Like Inez had to like leave the stage and like 
just finish out the set, man. He was right. He was fucking pissed. I bet. And I would be too, man. Yeah. That's, that's like, there are rules I'd be to crowd surfing. I was 16 and I recognized that this dude playing the sax was not happy about what just happened. <laughs> that's awesome. That <laughs> yeah, was pretty entertaining. I don't think they hear the, the sound that it made. <laughs> Ah, wild times at... Uh... Oh, yeah. I bet you freaking loved it. <laughs> All right, what you got for five? Uh, my number five is uh, Don't Change. I've always liked this song. It's a quintessential '80s tune, but it's just like it's just cool. Yeah. Like their video, like that video was cool, and like almost like the message to it was also cool. Like don't right. change for you, don't you? You know, it's I I, I really have always liked that song, and it's just the harmonies in it are really good too. I just it, it really that was uh, I I listened to a fair amount of that album just the other day and thought you know this that they had more depth than just your sort of bubble headed pop band. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of music coming at you. Right. you know, it starts off with the organ, um, and then the guitars come up. You know, it's just yeah, you're right. It's, they were not in the class of like you know the, the, the headbangers, but they also weren't like like super preachy like you two either. Right. Just kind of, there was a pocket for them, and they were the only ones in that pocket. And I think that's kind of why they got washed out. Right. They weren't super artsy. They weren't super. There wasn't like really heady like music that you just couldn't approach. No. But. It was like it was like almost like coming out of the '70s, almost eagle-sounding music, and just with a little bit of harder edge. Like so, it was accessible to you. And then you saw the band, and like you saw the front man, and you're like, "Well, this this guy's one of the coolest fucking things I've ever seen." Yeah, he he had a, a striking appearance. He had a swoon. He had a he had a great voice. Yeah, great voice. Um, one of the questions I asked when I was when we started looking at this was. You know, was in excess of political band, and it didn't take long to answer that, right? I I thought because I thought about like the song "Mediate," which may or may like not be song. on a list. It's a cool cool yeah. tune, and really all he does is say these these three or four word rhyming patterns throughout it. And I looked at all of what he said and I thought, you know, it, it feels like a perfect platform to talk about some sort of political, you know, angle. And he didn't do that. In fact, there was a couple of things in there, but a couple it really wasn't. The whole song wasn't about yeah. it. Yeah, right? I mean, the, the, the idea was ripped off from Dylan. And, you know, I think there was either a homage to Dylan or just kind of like a ripoff of him. Yeah. But, you know, I, I agree with you. But I, I always kind of saw that as like, uh, you know, because, again, I'm remembering the video. And it's like that was he was talking a lot about atomic fates and stuff like that with the mushroom clouds and right. shit on the thing. Um, so, you know, was it political or maybe he's just making statements? Yeah, I think he just was. Uh, the The biggest political song i could find really was guns in the sky Mm -hmm. which uh was a lot of people have attributed it to uh reagan's star wars plan right other than that i don't know that i saw a lot of other political references you know you you like you mentioned you too you think of political bands you know you too you think of bands that sing about weird stuff like rush sings about trees arguing right and honeydew you know that that doesn't that's not a political band, and In Excess had a couple songs that might fall into that, and I just... I think they're just like a, a rock band that did a lot of, you know, kind of almost relationship songs. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, that the girls would swoon to, and, right. you know, by, by what it looks like, it's like they had about a 50-50 kind of audience. Right, Kind right. of like the audience that, um, like, all of those bands were, you know, looking to get. Like, you know, that's how you get 72,000 people in Wembley Stadium. Yeah. You know, speaking of guns in the sky, if you think about a way to start a pop album, it's an interesting one. You know, it's real guttural. Mm -hmm. ah. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
Sounds a little like uh, Gold Dust from the Stern Show. (laughs) 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 All right. My number five is Not Enough Time. This is my number one. It is. Yeah. Well, then I will. I will default to you. No, I really love this song, and I, I I went back and forth. I'm like, is that really the number one song? Because they do have a deep catalog of you know songs that I really really like, um, and uh, I think this this uh, this song hit me right at 19 like so 1992. I bought this album. I went out of my way to buy the album, and um, you know this song has always been like something that I just I I really I've always liked it a lot. And uh, there's a great like, like drum mm-hmm. in, fill in and yep. in the middle there, um, and uh, you know I just always really liked it. It's a, it's a, a slow plodding kind of like a groove to his guitar, um, and then he like you know kicks it into high gear with his really excellent vocals at the end right. when you know when make time stop. Um, they they yeah. brought in the female backing vocalist yeah. who had a. a Kind of an odd, varied career. She ended up she ended up marrying the sax player. I don't think she's with him now, but she did end up marrying the sax player. Uh, and she had done quite a bit of work in and around, you know, not just this song. Um, and she's got a great voice. Yeah, I like. I'm with you on the drums. I think the drums in this song have uh, a great kind of. He does a really good job of dropping intricate rhythms into a song mm-hmm. that are kind of sneaky. They don't. You don't really know that they're there, uh, but he'll just add in a couple extra beats that don't necessarily make him, you know, a virtuoso, but they add a lot of texture without trying to steal the stage. Yeah, textures are a good word for it. They, it's like there are a lot of layers to this song. There's strings in it, there's um, drums, and he's got a funky effect on his drums from time to time. Um, you know, like I said, the, the groove of the guitar is really, you know, it's different. It's right. just different. And I think that, you know, perhaps... Well, no, this song is just always a really good song to me, and like it's in this this sea of you know all these grunge stuff that I was heavily involved in, as, as many of us were. Um, it was almost like a nice break from like you know this not so what you would call positive messaging coming from you know most of our grunge bands, and like this one is a different right. you know, kind of message. Right. So yeah, that's my number one. All right, what you got for number four? So my number four is uh, from the X album, and it is Disappear. Also have my number four. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, to me, I like this song because it's just uh, again, anytime. I, I guess I why, why I like these songs is because the, the best of their songs are just like cool. Right. Like it's a like, this band has a very high cool factor, and I don't you know like we've I think we've alluded to our their musicianship isn't you know super stellar it's not a prince level they're you know they're professional musicians they know what they're doing um but i think it's just outweighed by their coolness and michael hutchins is their coolness yeah. factor uh-huh. and and like this this song um just was really cool yeah i like this song too um again you've got this sort of seamless shift from major verses to minor choruses mm-hmm. hutchins's vocals are super clean they're not overdone yeah. the high notes he hits they don't sound strained or like he's pushing, and they're not low notes. I mean, he's got a pretty good range. 
And then the way the, the drums kind of double down on what they're doing in the choruses, it feels like you went from jogging to running, but they haven't changed the tempo of the song. I think from a mus uh, musicianship standpoint, the star of this band is the drummer. And I'll tell you who the boat anchor is. It's the guitarist. The guitarist, if you listen to his guitar licks now, Not much there. they fit, like they fit well, but most of them are three single note runs that he'll either run up and then run back down, or he'll just repeat this. I mean, this guy has, if it wasn't for the fact that he was a brother, right. he's got pictures of somebody. <laughs> Because there is no reason in the world why that guy should still be in this band. His his success to to skill ratio is way off. Yeah, and they have two guitars. Like the sax player, when he's not getting pulled into the crowd, is also a guitarist. Yeah, and so yeah, no, this is not a band that is heavy on the guitars, which is also I think part of their you know their their different appeal. Um, because you know in '80s rock, like that's what else was there, right? You had guitars. And these guys kind of started as a new wave band. Yeah. Now, it's hard to call them in excess new wave, but that was kind of the influence you heard and kind of the, the area that they were coming from. And they eventually morphed into something a little closer to just straight rock. But that idea of a guitar hero was not part of that new wave scene. Right? No. The, the, you, you couldn't say who played guitar for The Cure. No, or Duran Duran. Or Duran Duran, right? It, it, that's just not how that music scene was working. Yeah. And the way they used the guitar, while it was simple, is probably a, a kind word for it in terms of the, yeah, of that, the skill level. But that brother it, was stealing a paycheck. Yeah, it, it fit. <laughs> it fit what they were doing, though. So that was... Now, I, I'm with you. I think Disappear's a, a, a cool tune. Mm-hmm. I always like that line, you're so fine, lose my mind, and our world seems to disappear. I don't know why. It just it just kind of Yeah. was just kind of stuck with me. It was jammy. Yeah, totally. Um on the 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 uh the unimaginative guitar play, my number 3 is New Sensation. It is driven by the guitar, but it is two chords and only two chords, and that's it. Right. And I believe one, it's a suspended chord. So it's like you're only changing one note in the chord, and that's all he does for the entire fucking, uh, the entire fucking song. Yeah. But it fucking works. Yeah. Like, it's just a weird, and again, I think it's, it's, it's the, uh, the drums that are driving behind it and his lyrics. And of course the video was like super cool because he was, you know, the, the whole band was dressed up in, in, uh, tuxedos and stuff like that. And they're out on some sort of hotel that looks like, you know, in Prague or something, shit like that. But, um, you know, again, just cool. They had cool videos that I will give them that. And I think that they, they, they knew that. Um, and they played into that uh, because they're like, we have, you know, Jim Morrison here. We have in the flesh. J- Jim this. Morrison's a great comparison from certainly an appearance standpoint yeah. and kind of a persona standpoint. Well, his moves on stage were very right. Morrison. Right. He wasn't whipping his dick out that I know of, but <laughs> Morrison, Morrison had kept a certain that talent, <laughs> you know. <laughs> he wanted to show everybody his penis. <laughs> Hutchins wanted to get back to Dade County, Florida at some point. So uh, I like that song. New Sensations of Foot Bouncer. It, it kind of it gets you moving. Um, and a lot of In Excess's songs are that way, where yeah. you just find your head kind of bobbing as you're listening to it. Yeah, they're not out of place in a bar where, like, that's the other thing. Like, these are danceable songs. Like, whereas Rush had that problem, it was like, you can't dance to Rush because the time signature is all fucked up. Um, but, like, these are always, and that's why, like, NXS is always played in, like, you know, dance bars or, you know, wherever, like, when we were going to those bars so many years ago. Right, right. So many years ago. <laughs> <laughs> all right, my number three. Could you imagine going out to a club these days? Like a like a dance club, like like a club, like like you know what we used to, like what whatever the, the equivalent to what we used to do back in the day. No, could you imagine that? No, no, I'd, I'd be irritated within minutes. Five I, five seconds, <laughs> yeah. five seconds, I'd want to fucking leave. Yeah. And it's not because of the music or just, just, no. just you the, could even take the pandemic out of the picture. I'd still be irritated. The level of drunkenness and just <laughs> oh, yeah. amateur hour. I just, it's so beyond oh where I could even yeah. begin to, to like fathom being there. No. Like, oh, oh. Yeah. And so I, I wanted to be going to go to bed by 11. 
<laughs> this is fucking ridiculous. Give me to bed. <laughs> All right, my number three is never tear us apart. I, I was standing. You were there. Two worlds collided. And they could never tear us apart. We could live. Right? Yep. Staple, right? Big right? big ballad. Big so strings. Yeah, a little more bluesy than what NXS kind of did. Again, more major minor shifts. This time they didn't reverse and disappear. More super simple guitar parts. You know, it's a it's a cool tune. And they also had a, another good sax solo in this one. Yeah, this one was really uh, outstanding. It made the song, I believe. That sax solo is really, really great. So we're not laying the blame of sax solos um, on NXS's doorstep. Uh, we, we will find them. Well, yeah. There is somebody out there who started that shitty trend. And maybe they were trying to duplicate what NXS was doing. Um, you know, If you're following us on Twitter, go ahead and post something in the comments and tell us what you think, uh, who you think is responsible for the shitty 80s sax solo. I'm thinking, like, it's Lee the Weapon was 1987, wasn't it? It had to have started before that, though. Right? Yeah. I feel I like so. that's a like an eighty five ish kind of We gotta thing, track down Kenny G's career because he's got there is an influencer somewhere. And I, I think Kenny G is it. It could that be son of a bitch. Let's move on. <laughs> All right. All right. Get angry. That brings us to our segment, Brooks Masturbatory Fantasies. Right. right. Listen to Prince if you wanna understand what that's about. All right, you're gonna see in excess live. Who are you gonna see him with? Uh, I am going to uh, open up the show with uh, uh, Joe Satriani's um, right off his Surfing with the Alien album. I really like that album. It's really awesome. I wonder what he's like live. Like, pretty good. You know, you think, of, have you seen him live? Uh, I've seen his like live performances. Okay. So. Like I've always wondered if, he, if he's able to duplicate that sound that he has in the studio live. Uh, because you listen to Satriani, um, Steve Vai, Eric Johnson. Yep. You listen to their albums. They are so produced. They are so filtered that it's it would be difficult to tell whether or not these guys can duplicate that. Not with the necessarily the processed sound, but just to be able to rip off that guitar work live would from be From what impressive. I've seen from those guys in particular, including Eric Johnson, like... Yeah, the answer is yes. Like wow. they can do their shit. Like that's that's why I don't buy the whole Eddie Van Halen thing. Um, th- these guys are fucking incredible. Yeah. Like it's like you know. So <laughs> yeah, there's a produced sound for sure. Um, but live, from what I've seen, um, yeah, they're they they can do it note for note too. It sounds like that. All so right. They're pretty impressive. I like Satch. Um, yeah, and then uh, you know uh, I think uh, I'll have uh, REM come out for a little document. That's a good. Good pairing. Yeah, it was right before Orange, right? Or it was, was it Orange Crush or whatever. Stand the fuck? I in can't the place where you yeah. cannot do it. But Document was a good album. I like that. Um, so then I'll see that, and then uh, on the Kick Tour, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm I'm with the Kick Tour too. I don't know that there was much after that that I needed terribly. On the bill as well, I'm going to have Hall and Oates, and I'm also going to have. It's tough. Tough. What's wrong with Hall and Oates? I mean, listen, this isn't an excess podcast. <laughs> We don't have time. <laughs> Hall of Notes and uh, strangely, and go ahead. I'm sorry. Fill out your bill. <laughs> and the cars. Oh yeah, I love the cars. Right, cars with uh, with these guys. I think that would kind of fit. Right, the cars were a I'm... little bit of a precursor to this sort of sound. And Michael Hutchins would be very popular backstage <laughs> <laughs> because those guys. You got Baba Booey running around out there now. Yeah, strangely enough, Daryl uh, Daryl. Uh, what is it, Daryl Hall? Yeah. He sang backup on the chorus to um, Original Sin. The Original Sin, that's right. Yeah. Which was my number two. Oh, there you go. In the name of love, yeah. You thought what a be 
Team me up, yeah. Dream on black boy, dream on white girl, wake up to a brand new day. It's a cool song. Yeah. They bounce back and forth between black boy and black girl, et cetera, throughout the song. Nile Nile Rogers produced it. Nile Rogers. And he's the he's suggested the change. Yeah. Um, to make it more well noticeable. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Less white. Nile, yeah. Nile Rogers had some some interesting fingerprints on this too. Not only did he. Nile Rogers is Oh, he's, he's huge. So, huge. He's like Pharrell, man. The fucker's got so many talented. Oh, he's so good. I, I looked at him a little bit as I was looking at this too. When he was born, his mother was thirteen. Wow. Yuck. Yuck. That's that's, that's tough. That's, that's tough. Life. That is a young young mother. Uh, he started the band Chic, who sang La Freak and Good yeah. Times, and Good Times is what the Sugar Hill Gang sampled for Rapper's Delight. And then he went on to produce dozens and dozens and dozens of huge acts, huge names, including this song for In Excess. And he had done something recently for Hall uh, & Oates, and so he called up Daryl Hall and said, I, I want you to sing backing vocals on this uh, on this track. Did he produce Method of Modern Love for Hall and Oates? I believe he did. M-E-T-H. Oh, like, I hope that wasn't him. <laughs> so he has, he has Daryl Hall come in and sing the chorus with Hutchins. Now, when you listen to the song, I didn't know that that was Daryl Hall until working on this. You listen to the song and you start listening for it. You go, okay, I can hear it. I can hear him. I can hear him. You can't back there. not hear Man Eater. <laughs> but it's not as forward in the recording right. as he could have made it. Like you think about when Michael McDonald sang on Peg by Steely Dan. <laughs> As you know it, it's Michael fucking McDonald. Yeah, there's no escaping that voice. But, you know, Daryl Hall's got a pretty unique voice, too, and Rogers just brought him in there for a little bit of color. He mm-hmm. didn't bring him in there so that people listening to the song would go, hey, that sounds like right. That sounds like Daryl Hall. Yeah, it's not like the, the mashups that they do nowadays where it's a featured artist right. with another featured artist. They didn't feature them at all. They just come in, you're, you're a competent singer, get back there in the booth and bark out these tunes for That's me. That's right. Now, something about this song kind of reminds me of Saved by Zero from The Fix. Mm, I love the, the Fix. In the early part of it. I, it's not enough that dropping something in here to compare it would really make sense. It's more of a feeling than anything else. This was their first hit to break internationally. And there was some interesting feedback on this. Rolling Stone said that it had a backbeat that'll blackmail your feet, which is an awesome review. I think wow. that's really that's, whoever wrote that. That was some good pot. They word <laughs> they wordsmith that pretty well. Yeah, the Brits were far less kind to them on this <laughs> one. One re, one reviewer called it complete and utter turkey. That is an awesome scathing review. Yeah, oh, you've heard that new in excess. It's complete and utter turkey. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, what you got for two? All right, number two for me is off of the Listen Like Thieves album, and it is this time. Again, I just I go back to their older material, and um, it to me it was just so much different than you know this is '85, so um, you know you're this is like a height of Madonna and you know Prince like right in that 
vein right there. And this is just a different type of sound coming out of that, that song. And it's a, a, a much cooler version of the whole band, I think it's, you know. Uh, and again, it's, it's like, it's nothing, there's nothing too weighty there. It's, right. just, it's a song about, you know, again, just kind of bubblegum relationships. It's like, almost hits you at like, this is a high school band. It's like, you know, they're almost like a, um, not a techno Beatles, but like there are more kind of electrified Beatles. Not not that they're at the level of the Beatles. I'm sure. Saying, their, their song material is very kind of, you know, early Beatles-esque where it's like, I want to hold your hand, blah, 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 you know, right. things like that. And it's, you know, very, you know, much less, you know, Sgt. Pepper's, you know, um, Octopus Garden stuff. Right. A little less LSD in, in yeah. this. Yeah. All right. I have, well, now I've gone and lost my place here. You're going to have to give me barely. We're at your moment. number one because you stole my number one. You, you took my number one. Uh, not enough time. Oh, we are already at number one. Yeah, we're already at number one. This went obscenely quickly. All right. Uh, number one, I had to go with Need You Tonight. Super simple song. And I think this is probably a great example of NXS taking what is really a variety of basic instrumental parts and simply adjusting them possibly as to where they come in so that you get the feel of this complexity. But if you were to isolate the individual instruments, you'd go, that feels pretty simple, right? The guitar line on this is bump, bump. Bum, yeah, it's not. Bada, 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 three really. notes, right? Yeah. And then in the in the verse, he re- reverses it and runs it back up. But it's all the same notes, but they overweave it in a way that makes it sound a lot more complex than it really is. Uh, and then they drop some space in this that I kind of like too. And uh, in I don't know if it's in the middle or what, but they they come to a dead stop and Hutchins belts out, "I'm lonely," and then they start playing again. And that's just that use of space to work the songs and add a different layer of texture, I think is kind of a cool way to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and this one had a... Well, they didn't have much options there. You couldn't rely on the, uh, you know, the rhythm section to give you much. You know, <laughs> if Mr. No. Sachs was kind of, you know, out to lunch that day, you know, you're looking at the guitar player and you're like, mm, we're not going to get much out of him in this fucking triads. Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> you know, so... They have to play with the sound a little bit, I think. Yeah, they, they, they did a good job. I, I think I, they did, too. And I don't know how much of that was a great producer, because Nile Rodgers didn't do all their stuff. No. To my knowledge, he only did that one song. It seems like they have done... Someone steered them in the right direction, and if that was a, a, you know, an able-bodied producer or multiple people, then they did a good job. And if it was just these guys... And I think Hutchins and the keyboardist were the primary songwriters here. Yes. I don't think the other guys really had that much uh, involvement with it in terms of overall songwriting. I think what they had said was like, well, Andrew, the keyboardist, the, the, the brother, was like, Andrew and Michael, he does the music and he does the lyrics that he sings, so we just get out of the way. Yeah. And that was kind of a smart move. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just... Yeah. Too many cooks in there is going to, you know, ruin that, um, you know, the, the the broth there for them. So it's just the two of them that would, you know, write the songs and write the lyrics. And, um, you know, it was a good combination for, you know, what would turn out to be like good four or five album run there from yeah. like Shabu Shaba from 82 to, um, you know, Welcome to Wherever You Are in 92. I think there's five albums in between there. There was two albums prior, but they didn't really chart or do anything. Um, so they had a, a good little run with, you know, a killer album, you know, a 20 million seller. That's, yeah. those are fucking rare. Like, there's not too many artists that can say that. No, no, absolutely not. All right, that brings us to Your Most Hated. Oh, you want to go? Because I got a thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, yeah. Um, the, uh, 
Well, actually, go ahead because uh, I have I got to check a note here. No worries. All right. So this was not on any one of their albums. It made its way to the Lost Boys soundtrack. <laughs> you know, I know what song this is. Fellow Australian, fellow Aussie, Lou Barnes, I think. Lou Barnes? Lou, I think it's Lou Barnes. Isn't Lou Barnes a tight end for the Bears? <laughs> I don't think so. Hmm. Anyhow. Uh, good time tonight. Just a, I hate, hate it. I forgot about that. Oh song. my god! It starts off with that twangy country guitar, and then they're, they're, they're just shouting to the microphones. Everybody, get up and groove! And it's like, I don't know, it's like, and I didn't in excess of the line dancing song. It's like, I just, it was awful. And then paired it up with the Lost Boys soundtrack, which for some reason I was. Like infatuated. You were deep into the Lost Place soundtrack. I remember that being a regular rotation yes. in your CD changer. Well, no, it's, um, so I didn't get my license till much later than the these guys. So I was always being carted around by them, and I would, of course, of course, travel with my own mixtapes. <laughs> and and there was one in particular that had like the string of Lost Boy, you know, that with that sexy sax. That, remember, have you ever seen the movie? Oh yeah! Oh my god! The, the, what was the the, the muscle bound, yeah, oiled up, shirtless sax player? He the looked sax like, looked like it was three inches. He looked like Glenn Danzig. Yes. <laughs> and I don't know why I was so infatuated with with that song, but I, every time I put on the tape, like I just the eyes would roll all over the place because they're like, "Oh, what the fuck is this kid with this fucking?" Yeah, we get it. It's different, but it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> you know oh my gosh but this song in particular was not on that because i never liked it i just didn't like it and i liked in excess at the time it's just like mm, yeah missed the mark for me i forgot about that song mm-hmm. I, I had kind of a hard time with this because i find i find myself so sort of neutral on in mm-hmm. excess that I, that nothing really stuck in my craw to the point at which i could easily target it the way i did with journey or some of the other bands we yeah. had i guess for me the song i like the least is suicide blonde that was going to make my list. Like, I had that, and I scratched it off, and I'm like, no, 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 no. The Lost Boys one. But Suicide Blonde, go ahead. I want to, I want to hear why. Is it vapid to blame it on the harmonica? <laughs> no, it's not. No, it's, that's it. <laughs> I mean, it that's just it. drove me fucking whatever. Yeah. You know, what the hell? And then they speed you're, it up. You're towing a line with the sax overuse. Yes. And now you're bringing in the mouth harp. Right. Go fuck yourself with that. And not only the mouth harp, but you've you've accelerated it. Like yeah. you recorded it, and then yeah. you, and then you sped the recording. Up. <laughs> That's right. They do right? that. Or the guy is going to fall face down on the stage if he's playing that fast, <laughs> breathing in and out. That's right. They do that honky tonk yeah. part. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's, like, it's really weird. It was a huge hit for them, and I never liked it. No. It was always because that fucking harmonica. <laughs> Right, it was the song would start and you'd you'd already be like, I'm I'll, fucking irritated. Yeah. yeah, thanks for irritating. I was jo- I was fine 20 seconds ago, and now you put this bozo on with the harmonica, and and I'm I'm mad. <laughs> I would like to see him do it live. <laughs> oh yeah, and pass out with an saxophone player who's probably the same fucking guy. Right? Could be. Yeah. Okay, that brings us to our best four seconds. I like the chorus in "Baby Don't Cry." That that always kind of like. Um, just, I, I listen to the song just for that. So that would probably have to be it. Okay. I had, and, and this was kind of a weird thing, but they, and I think this is off of Live Baby Live, and it's not part of their show. That was a, Live Baby Live was recorded at um, 
um, the big soccer stadium in Wembley. Wembley. Yeah. yeah, recorded at Wembley. This wasn't part of that live recording. What it sounds like is somebody had a recorder going while they were backstage or in a practice studio or in a, you know, whatever. And it's them fucking around and they're like fucking around with each other singing a song called We've Got No Pants On. Uh, I don't know. It always just kind of cracked me up a little bit. It has really nothing to do with their music, but it's just, uh, I guess, an in excess memory for me. Yeah. An- another cool four seconds is the intro to Disappear, where it's almost like the, you know, the, the keys are playing like almost chopsticks. And it's just an interesting way to, to, you know, start a pop song that, you know, gained crazy popularity. Like, that's it? That's all you need? Just start like that? Like, fucking, I can do that. And then, (laughs) of course, it goes on to do other things. But, I mean, like, that always was like, man, what a simple start to a fucking song. Yeah. Just, goddamn. The the simplicity of this band was was (laughs) impressive. Getting really down to it is like, it's just simple stuff. It was. And, And it worked. Yeah. So, I mean, I tip my cap to them. They took um, three or four mediocre studio and stage musicians and made, yes. you know, $100 million off of it. Yeah. So, all right, who's your MVP? I would See, mostly, like, usually I would, like, pull something um, esoteric out of this. But, like, I think it's clear the MVP is Michael Hutchins. There's no question about like, it. Like, his whole persona and his stage presence. Is There's no like, question about it. This, these, like, you're, you're, like, you just alluded to this. Like, they're five guys who are, like, okay musicians. There weren't anything special. Certainly didn't have, you know, they just, they looked like they were, you know, they could work at a loading dock somewhere. They right. weren't, and then Michael Hutchins comes in and he is just, like, this Adonis that can sing and move yep. around the stage. And there is no way, no way this band becomes as popular no. as it does. Even in the Australian circuit, without Hutchins and had you know he had that look. face. He had the look, he had the swagger, yeah. He had the persona. Well he had the understanding of what he had also. Yeah. You know, he just he knew it and he shook it. He shook that moneymaker. <laughs> yes he did. All right, so here's a question for you. We yeah. we touched on this a little bit with Journey mm-hmm. and I wanted to know your thoughts. Michael Hutchins versus Steve Perry. Better vocalist or not? I like Hutchins. Better than Steve Perry? I do. I do. I think because it's just, um, you know, it, it fits his band better. I don't know that Steve Perry, yeah, I mean, I can see where you, you know, where you would say Steve Perry because, like, he is such a unique voice. But, like, again, I saw Journey with that, um, with that fill in. And it wasn't any different. Yeah. But In Excess tried to replace Michael Hutchins several times. Uh, it famously did went on a TV show. Right. I, I didn't see that. But... I watched the whole thing. And I thought that the guy that they picked was really very talented. But every time he sang an In Excess song, it's like, it's not it. Right. Just, there is something missing. And that something is just his swagger and his... So were they were they trying to replace Hutchins with somebody who was like Hutchins? Exactly like Hutchins? Because no. that's what Journey did. And you're right. Yeah. The, the, the Filipino guy... Sounds just like Steve yeah. Perry, but he was also making a career of sounding just like Steve Perry. Yes. Yeah, you're right. No, they were not looking for uh, give me, you know, the Michael Hutchins of the Philippines. Right? right. They were they weren't looking for that. Um, they did find somebody who was a talented, you know, enough singer and a, and a fairly okay, decent frontman. Uh, but no, they weren't. But like going back to your question, like his voice and like his whole package, his package, right? His whole package. <laughs> yes. Yes. 
I want Michael Hutchins' whole package. <laughs> not just a bit. And not Steve Perry's because he was a little grimy. Steve had a very different appearance and a different persona. I'll give you that. From a cool factor, there is no question. No, please. There is absolutely no question. I think my vote would go towards Steve Perry in terms of the power, quality, and tone of his voice. I think he had a richer voice. Well, I think that you appreciate the way he belts out open arms. (laughs) Listen to our Journey episode. Mm. You can hear all about it. Mm. Okay. All right, let's do our rankings here. Brings us to our rankings. Why don't you lead us off? Um, so out of five, I'll give their catalog uh, a 3.8. I'm going to go with uh, with about a 2.6 on this one. Okay. I, I was just looking at the catalog because I, I noticed like, like like my top six, including my my, uh, my honorable mention, I'm like, um, I've got one off of just about every one of their albums and every single one of their songs is vastly different than the other one in their kind of like theme and tonality. Like it's different there. Every single song is different. Yeah. Like, and I can't really say that even about like Def Leppard. Like Def Leppard is like, you know, one song is different than the other, but they're all kind of in the same kind of theme. Well, in excess, you have like different, you know, soundings, uh, song themes throughout their career. And I kind of appreciate that. I, I gave my hair over middle because... I don't know. It's it's not my style of music necessarily, so I I, I have to. We'll we'll give them a two six. All right, what you got? Um, for artistic ability, I gave them a, a two five. Uh, I dropped them. I dropped them down to a one and a half on this one. Yeah, I wouldn't argue with that. There is just nothing there outside of Hutchins and Hutchins. While he's a great great looking guy, his vocals aren't the same. No. As and they get they get Hutchins points in the next category. That's right. Cool which factor is what their cool factor. I put their cool factor at before four point five. Um, I dinged him a half because you know he can't be that cool for all six of them. Like, like there's just you. The rest of the guys are right. not. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. And for that reason, I've got him at a three two because mm. it's just you, you. All you have is Hutchins. That's all you have. Yeah. So, little little better than than middle, but that's it. All right, that wraps our In Excess episode. That was it. Yep. We uh, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, why don't you take a look at us on any form of social media, well, at least the forms that are Twitter and Facebook, where we are currently. We may expand that a bit as we go on, but you can find us under the number two, Idiots and a List, on both formats. You can also find us on Spotify with a playlist that includes all of the tracks we've talked about and the ones we've done on the previous shows. If you like us, make some comments on Facebook and Twitter. Let us know you're listening and uh, share us with your friends. Thanks again. Thanks for listening, guys. <laughs>